we're starting another podcast episode for Nourished. We have our special guest, Chris Glue, here. Yeah. The man, the myth, the legend uh, <laughs> of the, the cannabis space. He's a very, very prominent lawyer uh, in that space, and he's also a very good criminal defense attorney, too. So, welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you've been in the cannabis industry for how long? Long time. So, after I, well, really, it started back before I even left Ohio. I mean, I was active as someone advocating for change and reform in the law structure. So I looked into politics and supporting local politicians that were advocating for policy change. And then once I came out to law school, I kind of continued down that path and segued into my legal career. So like 25, 30 years I've been dealing with the cannabis industry. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So did you work in... Uh, criminal defense before that, or Correct. were you going straight into cannabis? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, you don't go straight into cannabis. You know, you got to remember at the time, let's say 2000, when I'm starting to practice my legal career, there was, you know, a limited number of cannabis cases that were being prosecuted. So you can't just go out and hang your shingle and say, hey, I'm only going to defend people who are accused of cannabis related crimes. But the natural progression, I drifted towards, you know, narcotics related offenses and representation of folks that were in that space. And then within that niche, I carved out the bigger niche of trying to be hyper-focused on cannabis-related offenses. I always felt good going into court and arguing for the guy that was growing, you know, field of green. It just, you know, the laws felt draconian. They felt antiquated. You know, it just didn't seem right. I always felt like I was on the right side of the law defending the guy who had, quote-unquote, broke the law with regards to cannabis-related. Yeah, and naturally, you're, you're held to a lot of people in the cannabis industry, you know, because California was the first state that legalized cannabis for the medical industry. Um, so you've been there pretty much since almost the start. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when this started kicking off, I mean, there's some of the claims to fame from being the first is that, you know, the OC Weekly back in the time got arrested. Yeah. So uh, when it, I was the first guy to come out and say I put a full pot leaf behind my ad, and, you know, of course, all the lawyers at the time were like, wow, that's like, you're just, you know, belittling your practice and you're, you, you, it's not, no one's going to take you seriously. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I, <laughs> I think I'm okay with that. And, you know, of course, I'd get all these seasoned attorneys and they would they'd pull me aside and say, you're, you're a good lawyer, you know, you present well, you argue well, you're, you know, you're on point all the time. Why would you want to, like, pigeonhole yourself to do cannabis law? And I said, well, I'd rather not be known as the rapist attorney. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm good with being known as a cannabis attorney. But everyone from judges, prosecutors, they would all, like, just look down on it. Like, it was, you know, like this area of law, like, that you were a goofball or unsophisticated yeah. or unprofessional if you focused on it. Right. And my response was always like, so if I was to say I want to help heroin addicts or I want to only defend murderers, You'd get behind me. Yeah, but (laughs) if I'm saying that I want to represent people that, you know, are convicted or or charged with cannabis-related offenses, when the general populace is out there supporting this and and seeking reform of these laws, not a lot of people are out there saying, you know, I think murder should be legal. (laughs) I mean, it just felt like so natural to fit in. And then, you know, of course, fast forward to 2020, and pretty much every lawyer I meet now is a cannabis lawyer. So I think it's funny that, you know, what was considered not even 20 years ago, really like this is around 2007, 2008-ish, you know, and it still seemed like super bold and audacious to come out and say, 
I'm a cannabis lawyer. Yeah. And, and there really wasn't that many. You know, Bruce Margolin in L.A. was one of the first guys to, to take on that task and play that role. But, I mean, there really wasn't a, a proliferation of guys that were cannabis lawyers. Bay Area was a little more prevalent, like Omar and some of those guys. But, I mean, you could name on two, two hands counting all the people that held themselves out to be cannabis lawyers in the entire state of California. Right, right. Yeah, it's so crazy how there was even the stigma of being a cannabis lawyer back in the day, mm-hmm. and now it's like a cool thing to do, you mm-hmm. know, and it's also very profitable, too. Well, I mean, I think, you know, that that kind of is a myth, too. Like, a lot of times, you know, I remember, especially early on, even to this day, you know, that's one of the, the odd things about the cannabis industry is, on the outside looking in, everybody that has never been a business operator in the cannabis space or was an illegal operator back in the day, they all tend to think that everyone's got millions yeah. and millions yeah. of dollars. And every time I'd go to court and I'd be representing, you know, an individual who just had a small grow and was, you know, a real, you know, I, I, an artist, a grower artist, I'd call him. And, and he wasn't even really in it for the money. He just loved talking to the plants. He believed in getting high. And right. He was a terrible businessman. He's lucky he didn't pay his rent. Right. And I'd go in and maybe get a thousand bucks to represent this guy, which I could have gone and picked any DUI case and got five grand for and I'd be in there and I'm talking to the DA and half the conversation is like oh you know your client's got money to pay for this and we know you're making the big bucks and what are you guys talking about (laughs) these guys are the poorest of all clients that (laughs) I have are literally the cannabis people but they they never believe that you know you catch one or two anomalies in the space uh, and especially when they started raiding all the storefront dispensaries, and, you know, they find mountains of cash, and and then it's like, well, everybody that's in the cannabis space has money. Not every cocaine dealer, not every, you know, carjacker has piles of money. You know, there's random few that are really good at their trade, but... That's true. That's true. Do you think, on on just what you just said right there, do you think that that point of view, I mean, it's still relevant today. I would say. Oh, absolutely. That stigma is still... That's well, read the news. Yeah. That's yeah. still prevalent today. But yeah. With, do you think that has a lot to do with how, I mean, I don't even want to say the law may regulate, regulate, regulated, but those people are making those kind of regulations because of that, of that stereotype? Well, yeah. Okay. So let's, I mean, just talking about that in general, I mean, so let's go back in time. Let's go back to when I first came out to California. I started working with groups like Normal and all these real strong grassroots advocacy folks that were dedicated to the reform of marijuana laws. And the policy behind it, or I'm sorry, the philosophy behind it was, like, let's make cannabis legal. Right. 100% for that. And every time we'd have these, like, policy debates as we, like, got towards, you know, like, you know, the Compassionate Use Act, and we start talking about more and more, like, acceptance and, like, what the model looks like, what it should look like. I was always the one advocating, like, listen, guys, be careful what you wish for because the direction all this banter is going in is towards hyper-regulation, hyper-taxation, absolutely not what the the market can bear. Mm -hmm. And all you're going to do is recreate a new illicit market that reinvents itself and then you're going to have a legal market that gets suffocated out and then you have to okay 
So I've always said that if you're going to do anything with regards to the laws, that you make it no different than a tomato, cabbage, lettuce. It's just a commodity. Basic, simple, you know, like, hey, make sure it's tested and it's clean and safe, you know, regulated like you would lettuce or any other farm produce product. And, of course, what do we end up with? The most regulated industry in the history of California. I was just going to ask you, why do you think it's so heavily regulated? Well, I mean, I know why. Because there's an outward perception that there's the way that that voters and a lot of policymakers look at it is a cash cow. You know, so it's like, hey, we're all all pretty much cool with marijuana. And we all realize it's probably ridiculous to throw people in jail for smoking it, for growing it, for selling it. So we finally come to that realization but we still want to capture the voters. We want to have a, an answer for the most conservative voter on earth. Like, we have to justify this to everyone. Yeah. So, look, we can make billions off of this industry because we can tax them at 40% effective tax rates. Now, the economist in any, you know, first-year economy student, you know, would, would look at that model and go, um, how exactly is that going to work? You can't. Ask someone to pay forty to fifty percent more, have a, a real business running, paying workers' comp, paying living wages, yeah. doing all those things. Yeah. It, would not, it wouldn't work in any industry. Exactly, exactly. I think that's something that we're dealing with. We're trying to figure out, and we keep banging our heads against the wall, and we keep asking, "How can we be resourceful enough to stay alive, to stay well, in business?" Well, get, get, let me give you the answer. To that it's constantly scaling down, constantly cutting overhead. Constantly delivering products into the the stream of commerce that are inferior because any attempt to increase quality, to increase overhead, cuts down on your ability to even survive. And so what they've done is every – they've disincentivized anyone to go out there and do things the right way in the legal market, like advertising. Like, I I mean, how can you advertise? You can't even write this stuff off under 280. I mean, literally every single thing that you would consider to be a best practice, you're encouraged not to do. Right. Like, you're not encouraged to make the highest quality product. You're encouraged to get the product that will pass testing. (laughs) Right, right, right. So you're not really trying to you, – you can't have an intention of really trying to help a consumer by delivering the best product to them. Your only hope is to get the best product at the lowest price point humanly possible. Right, right. And even at that model, you're almost completely restricted by the illicit market competition. That's, that's the problem. That is the problem. That's the problem. And, and every person in Sacramento, every person in every state legislature – can't possibly not know that that's what's going on. And it's like a system that was set up to fail. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah, Yeah, it is unfortunate. I tell these guys all the time, you know, this is one of the times California's wrong. Southern California's wrong. Mm -hmm. I feel like we have such a big opportunity to to move the needle forward, to Mm -hmm. move the culture, to move the industry forward, but we're being held back by so many, so many hurdles. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I ask these guys all the time, where... Where's that line? Where's that? Where's the threshold gonna gonna break? What's because something has to change? Because God bless these people that are uh, that are regulating, that are pushing these things forward. But something is gonna have something drastic is gonna have to happen for this market to settle. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know when it's gonna happen. But I mean, everybody that comes into this industry or even talks to me or even knows me or breathes next to me is like, oh man, you must be the cancer. You must be rich, man. You must be killing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, man. You probably know a handful of people 
and so calorie killing it, but that's just to clean up the top. You got to see the rest of the people here that are struggling to make it, that are struggling to just pay their light bills. Because you get, I mean, investing is different now. It's just different now. I mean, we're trying to, we always talk about should we raise money or should we not raise money? And one of the things we're really proud of is that we're self-funded. We don't have to, we don't have to answer for anybody. And I think that type of decision making has allowed us to get this far. But again, I just go back to it. Because going this far, we're still held back to how far we can go. And it's so frustrating because we're one of the companies, I would even like to say we're one of the companies that that really do care about our products and want to push the industry forward by how we market, how we speak about our products, how we make about how we make our products. And I just don't know just like what you said, any inch that we try to move forward and make something better than what it is, we gotta look at our bottom line. Is, is it worth it? Is it gonna make money? Is it gonna keep coming out of our pocket? How how red can we really go? And it's like we, we, we bang our heads against the wall day after day thinking about this, and it's frustrating because we love what we do, and we don't we don't really know when things are gonna change. So I guess that was a long winded question, but I mean, is do you feel like there's gonna be a some type of threshold that's going to break at any point? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the context of that question is, like, is there a tipping point? Is there a point where you see that regulation is going to change in a way where it becomes more pro-business? I think is what you're kind of getting at spiritually. It's like, well, I'd like to believe in the existence of this deity, but I need proof of existence. And right now, there is no proof of existence. What I see is a higher power, Sacramento, the regulatory bodies, BCC, governor, everyone included, uh, that still views the industry as beholden to it. Like, they're doing us a favor, like, by allowing us to exist and allowing this framework to be out there, and they still see, like, there's still this rush for licensing, there's still this rush for consumption of the available slots of resources, but what they're not really sitting back and thinking about is that 80% of the state does not have cannabis in it. So... If 80% of the state doesn't have a legal outlet for cannabis, who's serving that market? Because it exists. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about the 20% of the state that has legal license models in it. In there, you still have the illicit market thriving. Okay. So what percentage really is the legal market even capturing in the state of California? And when you're up there in Sacramento and you're on your perch and you're going, well, you know, we're not quite ready to reduce taxes yet. And we think more regulation might really be the answer. And we're going to work harder on trying to shut down these listed operators. All things that have never worked, that have failed time immemorial. Um, marijuana was illegal for how many years, guys? There are still illegal operators out there. So this mission to shut down illegal operators. Let's get over that off, right? (laughs) So we have to make the legal market a better option for the consumer. The only way to do that is to create competitive price points and be able to endorse the quality, the safety, the efficacy, and all that. You know, it's like, look, if people go out and they see a product that's remotely similar in packaging and testing results and things like that, and one's 40% more expensive, right. you'd have to be a fool to pay that price. Right. Do you think that they're even, that they even want it? I feel like they're playing this political game. Who's they? California. We're, we've been talking about California, right? My next, my bigger question is, you know, your thoughts on federally, obviously, you know, there's conversations that have been going on, and that, that bill that was like, uh, treated like alcohol, right? Kind of 
regulate it like alcohol. But if we're looking at California, and, or even states in general, right? states are slowly coming on board. But I don't know, I take a step back and I always feel like there's a little bit of this political game, and probably there is, that they're doing it to please the people, some people, mm-hmm. and they're also doing it because they're, they're making it so restricted to please another you know, set of people that don't sure. want it, right? Right. So they're just towing that line of like, well, we legalized it. Right. Smile over here. Right. We're making it super hard. Smile over here. Right. Right. Well, technically, they didn't legalize it. <laughs> the voters did. Right. So, I mean, they can't really take credit for it. It's it's more, and I keep saying they. I mean, if we're talking about the legislative body that's, you know, kind of got its hands on the wheel when it comes to how the regulation is going to play out. I mean, like right now, the governor's doing things to like consolidate the bodies, you know, the CDFA and the BCC and the Manufactured Cannabis Safety Branch. And these kind of efforts like seem like they might streamline processes and things like that. But it all comes back to, guys, the thing that's broken is the price point, right? Yeah, so it. if we sit here and we spend all of our time, and, and with most of these laws, I mean, the Crash Use Act was passed in 1996. Wow. You know, I mean, it's like, guys, you know, if you're talking about you know, the evolution of this through the legislative process, through the court processes, through trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. We're probably 10 to 20 years away from the government in the state of California being able to get their arms around this and say, we understand the economic side of this now. We realize that we need to make these two markets competitive. So, yeah, to people that think that we're six months away or two years away from having a really good economic model for the legal market, that's absolutely unrealistic. It's You'd have to have such a huge change in the yeah. makeup of the legislative bodies and the mindset. Everything would have to be rewritten, pretty much. Yeah, and, and you'd also need an expansion of retail storefronts and, and the cannabis legal marketplace in the state of California. Because yeah. you just have so many areas where the illicit market can continue to thrive. Right, right. That it just, it allows for the existence. I mean, I'm all for local control. I don't have a problem with that. And I agree with the intention of Prop 64 when they said, hey, like, we want to keep local authority out there, right? We want to keep the, the local governments having some say in what's going to happen in their community. But at the same time, the entire state of California can possess recreational marijuana. It's inconsistent. So if I live in Laguna Beach, I am allowed to legally have an ounce of recreational marijuana. I'm a constituent, I'm a voter, I'm a, you know, citizen of that municipality, and yet I, the, the, the only place I can go that's nearby, would I have to go all the way up to Santa Ana, right. or I got to go all the way down to San Diego to yeah. purchase something legal. Or go to L.A. Yeah. Or go to L.A. <clears throat> and that can't continue to exist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then go back to your point, I mean, 80% of California does not have legal cannabis, that's and right. that's why the black market is thriving so yeah. hard. Well, and then, the, of course, the price point. I mean, yeah, the price point. Yeah. I mean, when you have a 15% excise tax, you have cultivation taxes, you have sales tax, you have, you know, the local use taxes, you have, you know, in addition to that, you're paying employees, workers' comp, you're paying a living wage, you're doing all these things. You're paying your insurance, you're, you're bonded, whatever else you need to do. And you're paying more than rent. And you're paying more than rent, right? And then you have an illicit operator competing against you, paying an employee in cash under the table, maybe 10, 15 bucks an hour, whatever it is. And it's just, 
those two models don't compete. It's just the illicit operator has such an advantage over the legal operator that it's not even fair. Right, right. And then in California, it just wants to increase taxes even more. That's right. <laughs> That's know, the conversation that. we're having. Yeah. It's like well, some of these municipalities are starting to understand, like, well, you know, we'll do more volume and more people will come here and open up if we reduce and incentivize our use tax. But, I mean, that becomes so insignificant when you're already stacking, you know, with the excise and cultivation and all these other things, not to mention all your relicensing fees every year for the state of California. I mean, it just becomes so cumulative and oppressive. It's it's ridiculous. Right. You almost have to have a self-distribution license. So now you're forced to acquire additional licensing right. just to make the vertical alignment go smoothly. Yeah, so you have better margins. Well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's never ending. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. Do you think it's going to take a similar path to alcohol for the well, well, to prohibition, what do you mean? Federally, like, federally. What, if and when, you know, cannabis becomes federally legal. Okay. Do you think, how, how do you think that's going to affect it? What, do you, what path do you think that's going to take? Well, I mean, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, federal legalization. I mean, I think that, you know, we've taken micro steps with, you know, like the Safe Banking Act and other things that kind of set the table for there to be a reclassification. But, I mean, even reclassification isn't legalization. Like right. the feds, I, I don't see them legalizing cannabis. I don't see that happening. I see them rescheduling it at some point. I, I think that might be in the near to distant future, uh, within the next five years, hopefully. A lot of that depends on who's the next president and what the makeup and constitution of Congress would be because it's certainly – I mean, look, it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's just an ideology of the people that get into office. So. You know, if there's people in there that are strongly supported by the cannabis industry and the lobbying is done appropriately and effectively, then it'll get done. But there hasn't been a strong lobbying effort because, you know, a lot of these well-funded corporations that have come into the space have disappeared from the space in a lot of instances. And, you know, whether that's because of poor management or overspending or overacquisition or whatever it is, whatever it is. There just hasn't been a sustained push at the at the federal level to have like a company that's been around for ten years, you know, getting candidates and you know creating relationships, maturing those relationships, so over time they can get the votes that they need to advance that agenda. But you know, I, again, if there's no one in Congress in the federal government that's working to lobby and has lots of money to get people elected and help sustain that over time, it's not going to change. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a lot of new states are becoming recreationally legal, you know, business legal as time goes on, like states like, like Oklahoma, right, mm-hmm. that are issuing a ton of licenses um, where the, the prices are dropping because there's so many retailers. I mean, why is California, in your opinion, mm-hmm. not issuing more licenses? I mean, that's, well, first of all, a lot of the municipalities just don't want it. I mean, they're simply conservative and they, they don't understand. So, like, there's a phenomenon with a lot of municipalities. I call it first to be last, right? They, they're they the first person to line up and say, hey, we're going to do this as soon as everybody else does it so we can make sure we don't make any of those mistakes. Let them figure it out, and then we'll come in on the back end when all it is is just profit, right? right. We'll just come in and just tax people. And that's fine, but for the fact that, you know, to really get this thing, this enterprise going – like you said, we need to expand it. I mean, Oklahoma is a, it's a hard, I understand, I know Oklahoma very well. I know that they gave out a lot of licenses. licenses. Yeah. But, I mean, look, you can't compare and contrast Oklahoma and California. People do this all the time, though. They'll talk about, you know, compare and contrast with, like, Colorado market or Oregon market. And 
and the California market exists in its own vacuum. I mean, it's its own yeah. country. It's, it's so it's big. A, yeah. So big. Um, the footprint of California, I mean, the consumer base in California is vastly exceeds anywhere else in the world, really, for cannabis consumption, that's for sure. And Southern California, Northern California, the two hubs, San Francisco, the Bay Area, and then us. I mean, those are like, you know, A and B when it comes to the world consumption, right? So we have legalization in those two markets, right? So there is a strong presence of legal, allowable consumption. So, you know, the infrastructure is there to make it work. Because I would argue Southern California alone could do better revenue than the entire state of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. who is properly managed and, you know, regulated appropriately. But, I mean, I don't know that just necessarily handing out licenses is going to solve anything because you're still handing out a lot of licenses and giving people free reign, letting capitalism sort right. itself out. That's good. I like free enterprise. Let's say fair. Let's go. Let's yeah. take it. affect the prices a little bit. You know? Yeah, but, but here's the drop. The backside is like, I don't care if you have a thousand licenses or a hundred licenses. If you got to pay that excessive tax and the over regulation, right. now you're just going to have 999 failing businesses right. as opposed right. to 99. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you kind of see that already. Like, there's there's a lot of licenses that are issued in California, but not right. a lot of people will renew the licenses. Right. I, I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers and. Yeah, I know this is the direction we're going. I'd pull some stuff up. But, yeah. I mean, I, I know that the number of cultivation licenses that were applied for, like, the first year was whatever, you know, was big, large numbers, right, right. thousands, yeah. And then the renewals the next year was, like, in half. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's yeah, crazy. Like, how, when does that happen? Ever. Yeah, right, right. In any other industry. Yeah, you have all in these people year. that are rushing to get these licenses. They're so yeah. excited. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to grow and make all this money. And then they find out the real Not in 10 years. <laughs> right. One year. Right, right. That's... That's a catastrophic failure. Yeah. And for the people in government and at the California Department of Food and Agriculture and BCC to not go, whoa, this is broken. Yeah, that's kind of a sign. <laughs> that's a huge sign. I mean, that, if that happened in any other industry, if tomorrow half of the car dealerships just folded, right. people would not know what to do. Yeah. They would say that the world is spinning out of control. Yeah. If the stock market was cut in half tomorrow. Right. Yeah. If the housing market would impress yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, people, reacting, but California's not really reacting. Well, because they, they don't seem to care. They just right. they, they, again it goes back to that mindset. Well, these are cannabis people. Right. They've got they're so rich. much yeah, money. Rich. But that's, and that's you know you get the MedMen models and things like right. that where they hear all oh, these Canadians came down here and spent three hundred million dollars. Oh, they're fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not fine. Yeah, yeah. They're setting precedent for other investors, large scale investors, to go. Whoa, whoa, whoa wait. We better think twice before we invest in this campus market. Now loans are drying up, investment opportunities are drying up, yeah. public offerings are drying up. Yeah, VCs are pulling out of the market. VCs are pulling yeah. out. Now people look at deals a lot differently. They, they say, hey, you know, this, this yeah. isn't really what I thought it was. Yeah, they're, doing, they're doing their due diligence and not right. rushing to the market like they, it was like the first year. Yeah, so that's a little bit of a blame on the people that were the entrepreneurs that came out all, you know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and didn't understand the market. I mean, so that you, we got to take responsibility as an industry. Yeah. You can't just, oh, it's the regulators. Oh, it's government. Oh, it's this. I mean, you know, you got to know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. The problem is that I think a lot of operators really believe that things were going to get better. They believe that, hey, look, you're going to bring these taxation rates down. It's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Thought that would happen faster. Yeah. Thought the illicit market would dry up a lot faster than it has. <clears throat> It hasn't happened. 
As a matter of fact, it's probably grown. Right? Oh, yeah. Taxes yeah. went up. Taxes went up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like everything that we thought really would have become more liberalized and allowed business to grow and be more successful went the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. It became yeah. more conservative, more taxing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so let's talk about MedMen since we just talked sure. about them. Um, so MedMen, they're, they're like re- one of the biggest retailers out there in the country. You raise a bunch of money. Um, I'm not sure if you follow Blacklist, mm-hmm. but Blacklist released an email of one of the buyers of MedMen, mm-hmm. basically you know stiffing all the the different you know brand, you know pay vendors. Stock or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I heard about that. Stock, yeah, so basically they, they were saying, all right, we can't pay you right now. We'll figure something out. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, this is like a big brand in cannabis, and people look to them. There's billboards everywhere. You know, they raise a bunch of money from VC companies, but they're like laying people off, right? Might be the most recognizable. Yeah, yeah, most recognizable for sure because they market so much. Right. Um, what do you think is going on with with them? And, and you know, what what is your view of like companies are that, that look like they're doing so well and they're they're just losing money and bleeding cash and laying off people? Well, I, I'll even add on to that because when we first started, we looked at MedMen as a staple. It's like, oh, you know, any other store cool, but MedMen, oh wow. We work with them. We were just like that was that was that the was trophy. a brand to work with. That was the know? trophy, right? And seeing everything going on with them right now just tells you where the market. Because not only are they sticking with the vendor, I mean, they're still trying to open up multi-shops nationwide. I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't understand the plan, I don't understand where they're getting their money from, but they're still trying to expand. However, if if legal if legal business is tough already, and we realize that it's tough, and then you add on the caveat is if, if you work with somebody like, let's say, Venman, who's supposed to be that trophy, that pinnacle, that standard, and they don't pay vendors, like, where does that leave us? Mm-hmm. You know, when we ask that, and we're almost, we almost have the policy here where we don't even do terms. If you want terms with us, I mean, we treat it almost like a credit card. You know, you got to do CME first, you got to do a couple ones, and then we literally ship everything under your table, then you get terms. But we don't even do terms after that. Well, how, where does that leave everybody else who, I guess I'm just trying to open the, the window for new people to see, to get a gist of what the cannabis industry is, if they want to get into it. I mean, where does that leave new people? Where does that leave even people here that are that are in the industry right now? Like, what, I mean, how do they strategize? How do how do how do we move when we see companies like this at the top? You know, maybe folding, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it maybe not so much about them folding. It's more about like the model that they ran and the sustainability of it. I mean. There's a property side and a license acquisition side to that. Then there's a retail operations side. Then there's a, you know, a reliance on outside capital. I mean, there's yeah. about 800 conversations yeah. you could have within yeah. that conversation yeah. and say, well, maybe they did this right, they did this wrong, and how they, you know, acquired the debt and, you know, all. I mean, there's, that's a high-level discussion that really becomes, like, what your theory on, you know, how to build a new brand, how to, Market it properly in an emerging market right. and specific to cannabis. Right. I mean, again, there's a lot of good lessons that come out of the right. MedMen experiment. Yeah. And, and not all bad. You know, it's yeah. not like everything they did was bad. I mean, there's there's a lot that they did that was really good. And, and I think people are kind of unnecessarily picking on that right now and saying, oh, look, MedMen's failing or they could fail. And look, at, it's sending this horrible message to the rest of the, you know, the marketplace. Right. But I'll tell you what, like, I mean, again, we could talk about that for hours. I know we could do a whole podcast on the amendment. Yeah. And, and one segment on how they did a great job acquiring property. Yeah. Just on that alone. Right. Because, you know, they, 
they did some things that I think uh, a lot of people would say were genius when it comes to acquiring prime real estate in some markets. But I digress, and I'll say this. I think that if I was a currently a legal cannabis operator and I had read to anything that MedMent did and I was somehow still connected to that, I would be celebrating every press release that comes out spelling out their demise, their doom, their gloom. Because you know what that does? That drives 50 new guys that were going to come into your space and try and take you on. Right. And a bunch of guys that got yacht money that are sitting down in the Balboa Bay Club and right. they're going, oh, I was going to throw a couple mil into Canada's <laughs> startup. And yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe just maybe not. <laughs> because every one Save of those people yep, that, that just got knocked out, maybe wisely knocked out, sure. has given you more market share. So it's like a reverse analogy, right? It's like you're looking at it, and if you really take the time to crunch the numbers on it, like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of bad messaging that comes out of this. There's a lot of good. Yeah. Because the more people that are scared or, or yeah. just kind of, like, step back, yeah, you know, that could have been the product that just wiped you out. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Mendes can be like a case study in college somewhere sometime, you know. Yeah, but it's not really because it's like to the cannabis market, it's it, it's unique because people are going, wow, this is crazy. But, I mean, this model has been around for a long time, this retail expansion model. I mean, look how many retail stores have gone out of business. I mean, they came in and they were like, hey, we're, you know, JCPenney's, we're, we're this, we're that. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at a lot of retail, sure. you know, Startups and, and people that try to capture market space. And that's a story that's been told numerous yeah, times. I don't think they really did anything unique in the sense of uh, the retail space, but I think they did it in a way that maybe just wasn't really truly sustainable. Yeah. Right. And, you know, cannabis being what it is. I mean, look, it's just like anything. When you come out and they just legalize uh, alcohol, like my friend alluded to earlier, the prohibition model. So like if you start a distillery right on the back end of Prohibition, I mean, do you think that every one of those alcohol operators made it? No. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. Sure not. Yeah. You got to know what you're doing. <laughs> and they went through a crazy time. Right. Because, I mean, people forget. They think, like, Prohibition was, like, instantly approved and every city and every county and everywhere in America was all legal. That's not true at all. They're still dry counties. They're still dry counties. But back when, they, <laughs> yeah, when yeah. Prohibition was lifted... Most of the United States remained dry. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a 100% consumption base. And there were states like Georgia and other places where you still had to go to, you know, all these illicit operators to find alcohol. And that market thrived for years. Yeah. To this day, moonshine is still a commodity. Yeah, right, right, right. So. Yeah. Well, so you talked about, like, you know, retailers that closed down because of disruptors like Amazon mm-hmm. and stuff like that. What right. Do you, what do you think is going to be the disruptor in cannabis? Well, so cannabis is kind of unique in and this is the one thing that makes it different, right? So if I have a, a Sears or JCPenney and I have this retail storefront, what's to stop someone from, you know, just acquiring the same goods on Amazon? Right. Nothing. It's, it's easier, it's more convenient, it's cheaper, it's everything you can name, right? So Amazon crushes the retail storefront. Here's the thing. With cannabis, they've made these retail, they've tried to protect this retail storefront model. So as long as the regulatory framework kind of skews towards implementation of, like, protection of the retail storefront model, you're going to have something that's different than the traditional, you know, retail t-shirt sales shop, right? right? 
because you're almost driving customers like to that storefront to force them to have that experience. Yeah. But the more and more delivery, statewide delivery becomes a lucrative model that's that can be competitive. And then Amazon's unleashed and they can drone in a, a flower bud to your doorstep within five minutes. I mean, you are going to see a diminished, you know, impact of the retail storefront. But the retail storefront has room to grow and evolve, right? I don't think that the retail storefront of 20 years from now will look anything like what it does today. Yeah. I think the successful retail storefront will look a lot more like a lounge. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have consumption, you'll have entertainment, you might have like a more niche like yoga feel right, or yeah. vibe where you have somewhere like, to hang out. And just hang out and a... It's going to be, everyone's going to have its own identity. Right, you know? right, right, right. You'll have like the Amsterdam coffee shop model right. where people are sitting on their laptops, typing away, consuming a little cannabis, enjoying right. their day. Then you'll have more clubby feel places where people can go and maybe even start to combine the alcohol model with the cannabis right. model. And that's where the, the storefront is going to be sustainable. I mean, I don't think you're going to have a bunch of, you know, places where you just come in and order marijuana like. Yeah, right. I don't think that'll last. That's a sexy vision. I think it'll be like 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we're way far. It's a 100-year model. I think no, it's no, right. 10 to 20 because, I mean, consumption lounges have already started to catch on. <laughs> They're already legal. Right. So you already have those. Right. So now it's just about that expanding, right? Because that's going to be the natural progression. I mean, look, there's alcohol bars. There's going to have to be cannabis <laughs> bars. Right. I mean, it's a natural... <laughs> You know, progression of the industry. So, well, yeah. one of the things, like just like, since we're kind of getting what we're doing right now in cannabis, he forwarded me a, um, an audio clip of one of the things that you talk about. Crap, it was um, the kiosk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The kiosk. kiosk. And that was genius. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know who came up with that, but that was genius too. Yeah, that was puppy delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was genius. Got like puppy delivery out yeah. there. Yeah. Whatever, whatever people like Puffy are, are doing is mm-hmm. is helping us. Right. Yeah, it's moving the industry forward. Because it's right. being resourceful. It's being right. innovative. And right. I mean, I heard you speak. I mean, you can speak about it, but I, did. Sure. I heard you speak about it. I was like, right. oh my God, this is genius. Right. So, the, yeah, I mean, the kiosk model, like right now, because you can't do a retail storefront in every city. Yeah. You can't right. do, you know, anything. you can't do cultivation. You can't do distro. You can't do manufacturing. But the one thing the state did allow was that they allowed delivery into yeah. every jurisdiction. A lot of communities are like, no, that's, we don't care anyway, sure. it's still legal, and sure. you're, you go, okay, well, state law preempts that, but, you know, so what we're trying to do is get people that are in that underrepresented, underserved market and say, hey, look, guys, you can actually order legal cannabis, right. mm-hmm. you just have to do it through delivery. Right. So we're trying to educate those consumers, right. and honestly, a lot of people have, you know, voiced the concern that, like, Everybody knows they can order legal cannabis. They right. just don't do it. Right. It's not true. Like, the minute we started having any educational kiosk out there, every single person would come in and go, wait, you can get legal <laughs> delivery, and it's tested, and it's licensed? And I was like, yeah, there's no, like, public service announcements out there, like, educating the masses is how this right. really works. People in the industry, of course, know. Uh, we get it, okay? But the average consumer really isn't that well-versed on it. And in a lot of these places, we would get people that would come in and go, well, I've just been going down. There, there's a legal shop here in my city. Right. We're going, well, you don't have legal shops here. And they're going, no, it's right down the street. And they tell us, hey, we're like, they don't have a license. <laughs> like, but they told me they did. <laughs> yeah, look them up on the state website. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. all I can tell you. Yeah. So, 
I mean, the reality is most people, if they see someone selling cannabis in a storefront, they just assume it's legal. Right, right. Don't right. even think twice about it. Right. So the state, I mean, the state's tried. They've had, like, little, you know, advisements. But, I mean, like, how many people, average consumers, are going on the BCC website <laughs> and saying, well, i got to check this local dispensary and make sure they're legal. It just, right. that doesn't happen. It comes down to price, too. Yeah, it's price, too. If, if somebody who's just looking for cannabis comes right. to a store and yeah. they see this price and they go to... Well, come on. Yeah, well, and that's another thing is that if you don't even know that you're going to one shop that's legal and another shop that's exactly. not legal, and you're seeing this massive price difference, you don't sit there and do the math and figure out, well, that one must be legal. Yeah, that's safer. Yeah. Look, you're just like, hey, I think that yeah. that's way yeah. cheaper. Exactly. Exactly. That's what consumers do. It's common sense, right? No, and also too, the other problem that people don't understand is you can't. It's very hard to retrain a consumer. Think about this. I mean. If I literally told you that every single Mercedes you bought your whole life, because I know you're a big baller, you're in the game. <laughs> yeah, right. Dude. And you, every <laughs> year, you're, you're, <laughs> when you were born, you had a Mercedes. So every <laughs> year of your life, is that right? Yeah. Every year of your life, you had a Mercedes, and it was an S550, top of the line, whatever, Maybach, whatever, right. and you paid 50 grand for it. Right. And every year it went up five grand, just, right. you know, sure. inflation. All of a sudden, I said, "Yep, you know what? You now you got to pay three hundred thousand dollars for that." <laughs> yeah. What do you? And but I, but you can still go back to that old shop and get it for fifty grand, dude. Obviously. So obviously. how does that consumer, in his own mind, translate to paying three hundred thousand dollars for that product? They they start to go. You know what? I'm just gonna go back to yeah. the solicit market. Yeah. Maybe it's not as safe. Right. Maybe it's maybe maybe some cops will come in yeah. and raid me when I'm there buying my car. But once I drive it off the lot, no one's gonna see. Yeah, it's not like a police officer could come in and check your weed and go, "Oh, this is yeah, this isn't licensed, yeah. tested, regulated yeah. pot." Yeah, I'm gonna have to put you under arrest. Once you're out the door, you're good. Uh-huh. That example right there is just perfectly describes the marketplace, mm-hmm. and it's so many layers to what you what you just said. That example, so many layers. I mean, I understand, but mm-hmm. like you just said, the regular consumer. I mean, you told that story. How can they understand it in the cannabis lane? Mm-hmm. I mean. That's so mind blowing. There's so many layers. Right. There's so many things yeah, to say. Consumers just buy for cheaper. It's economically, it doesn't make sense. Right. Really like the store. You know? Well, and it's just like I remember when I used to, in a former life, smoke cigarettes, and I used to trick myself into this thing. I would always tell myself, hey, I'm going to quit when the cigarettes cost more than two bucks. You see how long it was. <laughs> yeah, right. And we used to sit around and go, man, you'd have to be an idiot to pay $2 a pack for cigarettes. And man, I would never do that. We finally got up to two bucks. And we're all still smoking. And we're like, <laughs> all right, two twenty-five. Two twenty-five is that's you know. But you know what? Why did it not stop me? Because it didn't go from two bucks to ten bucks right. overnight. Right. It went from it's two to two ten. Yeah. Two to ten to two fifteen. Yeah. Two fifteen to two twenty-five. And then you're like, yeah, all right, yeah. all right. Now, if the cannabis market, the legal market, had transitioned in that manner, right. no problem. Right. Someone will come pay an extra ten cents, an extra fifteen cents. What if you start charging an extra thirty dollars yeah. for the same flower that's going to get them high once? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in business school, they, they teach people to not do that. It's right. called price shop, right? right? That's right. People will be like, "Oh, fuck that! I'm not going to buy." Better to start high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just like the cannabis industry, and especially the regular, is kind of kind of contradicting regular business practices. Right. You know? What should have happened if they wanted to truly allow the model to be sustainable is what should have been done as an economic impact study. They should have came in and said, okay, in the illicit market, let's gauge an average 
you know, price per unit for every product that you could possibly call a SKU. Like, what what SKUs will translate to the legal market? And they should have had some real analysts come in and give them an economic model on that. Say, okay, you know, these OG strains are right now selling at this price point. And then what they should have done is gone, okay, well, how much could the market sustain if we were to tax it at this level? Maybe we can get another eke out 8 to 9% without creating mass panic shock and all this stuff. And that should have been done, but it was never done. You know what I mean? So the alcohol industry didn't go through that. Like, once they made alcohol legal, they didn't go, okay, but now it's going to be a 50% tax on all legal alcohol. They didn't do that. You know, because it wouldn't have worked. You know what would have happened? Every one of those gins and stills and distilleries that were bathtub, you know, productions, never went out of business. They would have built bigger bathtubs. Right, right. There'd be way more speakeasies today. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy how regulated cannabis is by now. You know, for thousands of years, it was considered medicine, right? For in different cultures and whatnot. And even in America, cannabis extract was actually medicine before it was banned, mm-hmm. right? And uh, what are your thoughts on why cannabis was banned? There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. You know, I'm opening that door. Though. No, I mean, it's not really. I mean, that's, you go back to the historical context, it's all really well you know, memorialized and documented. I mean, you know, Hearst played a big role in that and, you know, just the overall, you know, cannabis fever that was prominent and, you know, it was funded, you know, the paper became, you know, I mean, hey, I got trees, I want to make those into paper and Hearst won, you know, I mean, it was a a campaign, a PR campaign. I mean, it's really not that hard to, you know, convince people of things when you use the media and you have an effective tool to do it and, I mean, the funny thing about it is when cannabis was, you know, started, became illegal and restricted, you know, that's, it's funny because that's when you could probably smoke an ounce of weed and barely get high. You yeah, know, right. I mean, people literally would smoke joint after joint after joint right. and be like a little heady, yeah. you know, yeah, and just yeah. have a good, and I miss those days because that's the kind of weed I need to be smoking, <laughs> uh, and, and not have anxiety and panic attacks. <laughs> but anyways, I digress. That was a, a different age of marijuana, and it, and it truly was an age of marijuana where it was literally harmless. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about <laughs> drug that, there's no one that could argue that it yeah. was a, a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe, you know, because a lot of jazz musicians smoked it, you know, that is, your kid might turn into a great, you know, bass player or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But, that being said, I mean, like, really, drug laws in general are very odd, because yeah. it's policing morality, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, if you have a drug addiction issue and you start robbing people and things like that, you know, you're creating, you're starting to get into the realm of doing crimes that are, you know, morally wrong and reprehensible. And you can't really justify robbery or murder or rape and things like that. Malum and say crimes, but when you just prohibit things, malum prohibit them, and just say, well, I don't want anyone to wear hats anymore. You start making up really silly nonsense about, well, you know, I saw a guy walking down the street the other day, and his kind of brim slipped down, and he couldn't really see, and he walked into a tree. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of logic that was behind the original initial prohibition of cannabis. Just absolutely absurd stuff that we would all go, come on. And I don't want to get into all that, but it's like, it's out there, it's well documented, it's nonsensical. Yeah. But, I mean, the reality is that when people tend to try and be moral police, it's always a losing proposition because then all you do is you make 
those folks who are going to choose to, to make the moral and conscious decision to indulge in that activity, you make it more dangerous. Right. You make it more susceptible to criminal activity. You know, I mean, I advocate that, you know, most narcotic drugs should not be illegal, but they should be, you know, provided yeah, safely and yeah. there should be programs for people. And, you know, like anywhere that they've ever tested drug legalization, consumption levels have gone down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How does that even, yeah. how do you argue that? I yeah, mean, it's yeah. like, if I say to you that heroin's legal tomorrow, and you'll get a million people run out of the woodwork and say, well, that means my daughter's going to start doing heroin. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Right, right. You know, just because, it's like, just because it's legal and, and 100% allowed to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, how many people do it? Right, right. Not a lot. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I mean, if you educate people and say, hey, look, if you go up in the air and you're really high up there and you have a parachute, you put it on and there's like a whole instructional man, you could do that. Mm-hmm. But if you go up there and you jump out of the plane, you're going to die a horrible death. Yeah. They envision that and they go, well, I'm not going to make that choice today. Right. So a person who's going to be educated about the effects of heroin, they're going to have a pretty simple process to go through, especially if it's legal and they can be educated on it and they understand. There's others that would argue it's a moral hazard. You know, it's like. If you put seatbelts in a car, well, it makes it safer. Well, does it? Or do people then drive more dangerously? Yeah, right. They drive faster because seatbelts are Right. And there is, I mean, there, look, there's been studies that have shown that that's the case, right? But, you know, I don't think that when you talk about really hard drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, things like that, I don't think a lot of people really struggle with the idea of, like, this isn't an experimental thing. You know, it's like, yeah, driving fast on the freeway, everybody's probably done that once in their life with or without a seatbelt. When you start talking about jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, heroin, meth, things like that, I think most intelligent people understand that there's a huge risk to even starting that process. There's another side of that argument that is, well, clinical, medical-grade heroin and other products aren't going to have that same first-time addiction protocol as you would from street heroin or fentanyl-laced heroin, <laughs> you know, where you die on your first, you know, experimentation. So, you know. Yeah, I think uh, that has a lot to do with the pharma companies, too, because pharma companies, Absolutely. You know, cannabis is a huge threat to pharma companies because... Well, a threat and a, and a commodity, yeah, you know, they right. can market it, too. I mean, I, I think they actually, I, I take the opposite viewpoint. I think that the pharma companies want to see cannabis succeed because I don't think that at the end of the day, cannabis is a cure-all for any medical no, condition. Yeah, I think it has medical applications, right. but I don't think any pharmaceutical company is going, oh, wow, this is going to cure cancer and seizures and... We're screwed. That's not going to happen. But what I do think is good for them is that they can sit back and let all the pioneers like you develop it. Mm-hmm. They can wait. They can do their own offshore testing right. and kind of build a protocol. And then once it does become federally legal, they'll go, okay, let's start to stick our toning. But what all those major, major companies are really waiting for is interstate and international right, exportation right, rights right. and things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, the big play of cannabis is not dominating the California marketplace. Yes. It's not even just, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's the ability to get marijuana to Brazil. Because yeah. you know what, Cal, like, think of this. People to this day can go get wine that's grown in any region in the world now. Ohio, where I'm from, yeah, we have wineries. Yeah. So you can buy wine from Ohio, you can buy wine from Tennessee, Alaska, Anywhere on earth you can get wine produced. The thing is, there's two little pockets in Northern California, Sonoma and Napa. Mm-hmm. They still get more money for their wine than anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. 
So it starts to become about Appalachian, right? California-grown weed will always yeah, dominate the, the marketplace. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's not the best. I mean, there's people that argue Napa wines aren't the greatest, but, you know, the reality is the average consumer is going to pay more for an Napa wine. Mm-hmm. People in Rio de Janeiro will pay more for the Louis Vuitton brand. Sure. Oh, yeah. They're going to pay more for the SoCal, you know, yes. strains. Right. And if, just if it has that Appalachian stamped on the right. packaging, they're going to be like, oh, I'll pay 30 bucks more for that one. <laughs> and they'll have their That's fine so California cannabis with their dinner mm-hmm. instead of their bottle of, you know, Opus One. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the big plays have countries import and export weed. Like Canada has license to export weed to right. countries like right. Brazil. Right. Greece does too. I mean, I think it's going to help a lot of economies. I mean, what do you, what do you think the United States has done that yet? Why do I think? Well, because yeah. they, I mean, first they got to get over, they got to be allow interstate, you know, commerce. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're struggling with that concept. I mean, it's just in its infancy. So, I mean, plus the federal government doesn't need the, the revenue at this time. It's not like. United States government's going, geez, where can we find 10 bucks? You know, they, yeah. they've we're got a lot of money. Products, you, know, so. it's just, yeah. you know, it's not it's not mission critical. And, you know, cannabis does generate revenue, but there's so many other revenue generators for, you know, the government. And it's still a politically sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things going on in politics today, and cannabis yeah. is one of them, but it's not it's not really all that important in the grand scheme. Yeah. Um, and for the viewers that don't know, Chris is also a black belt in Brazilian <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu. I wanted to ask you, do you use cannabis in, in practice, Jiu-Jitsu? Sure. So more, no, I, I, I used to recreationally consume cannabis on a, on a grand scale. Me too. And then as I've gotten older, I've kind of, it's become more ther- therapeutic in application. Right. So I use like more creams, sure, like, yeah. like a lot of CBD. Um, more effective for like helping me with sleep, recovery, inflammation, yeah. things of that nature. So no, yeah, I still definitely use cannabis, and I think that it has a place in sports performance and recovery, and in just in recreational enlightenment and all those avenues. But you know, I think that a lot of a lot of jujitsu has come out of you know the cannabis world, and oh, yeah. there's a huge presence of cannabis in the in the jujitsu community. I mean. I've maybe been to one or two gyms that were kind of like, hey, don't be coming in here smelling like marijuana. And that's in, I've probably been to 200 gyms that I've spent time in all over the world. And, and I mean, again, that was more like a kind of an instructor's preference. And those were the gyms that there was a lot of guys that smelled like cannabis. So, but I mean, there's a, I would say just kind of spitballing it. All the people I've ever rolled jiu-jitsu with, and I mean, that's an ungodly large number, I would say at least 90% of them consume cannabis, and most of them recreationally and in pretty significant levels, and then, you know, a good majority that do it just for, you know, therapeutic reasons, and even like of the 10%, I would say that absolutely do not ingest cannabis, I would say within that 10%, maybe 1% of them has any real anti-cannabis viewpoint. Right, right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so the yeah. jiu-jitsu community is just arms wide open when it comes to cannabis. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah, I, I like to smoke before I work out. It helps me with my mind-body connection. Some people get, yeah, get away crazy. with that. Some people are just the opposite. Yeah, they they're just, like, oh, I can't even do function. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah, it's different for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah. I mean, like, I know guys that can train and, and they can get to that, like, perfect little zen state where they're creative with the flow with their jiu-jitsu. 
And then I know guys that if they smoke, they're not drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so and I got a lot of guys that seem to enjoy the you know a light buzz after a good workout. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, let's talk about sports and cannabis. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of NFL players out there right now that are advocates for cannabis, right? Because they have a lot of damage. A lot of uh, athletes in general are yeah. advocates for the therapeutic benefits, you know, pain management, things like that. I mean, look, look, I won't. I'm not a doctor, and I, I personally haven't. Uh, pain management hasn't been a, a, a something that's been effective for me with cannabis. But I think again, it's it's for the individual, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say that if you're telling me that you got off of opioids, opioids, and um, converted to a cannabis regime, and you found the same or better results, that's I mean, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't really care if it's real, if it's a placebo. Right, right. As long as you get off the opioids, you're right? off the opioids, yeah, right? Yeah. right? So I mean, it, it has to have a place. And I mean, like, look, let's be real. I mean. Why are we testing for cannabis in sports, in any sports? Because right. th- there's no way you could ever argue me. I mean, you could argue that it might help with recovery and things like that to a degree, pain management. But you can't tell me. I would go into the ring with anyone if I reinvented my MMA career and was to be 21 years old again, and that's a title fight. And you said, okay, your opponent, he's going to smoke three blunts and a <laughs> yeah. and go walk in the ring and fight you. Yeah. You're going to be scared. Or <laughs> would you rather he did it? Yeah. I'd be like, let him smoke. <laughs> Matter of fact, go seven days. Yeah, yeah, give him ten of them. I'm, I'm cool. Like I got, I, I feel like I'm at the advantage now. Right. Yeah. So if this guy wants to smoke out. He can walk. He can fight with a joint in his mouth. <laughs> I got no problem with that. Right, right. You know, and I'm gonna knock him out. Yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah. I'm good. Like I'm not even worried about it. If he knocks me out, I'm gonna be like, you are the man, yeah. and God bless you. Yeah. It's like you know, there's been some athletes. I won't name names, but. They tested positive for things like cocaine yeah. after a UFC fight. Mm-hmm. And I'm just scratching my head going, you can't, I mean, that just shows how badass these guys are. Like, if you <laughs> can blow out cocaine and be drunk yeah. and smoking weed before yeah. you walk in the ring and fight. Not that I'm encouraging someone to do that, but it's like, you can't tell someone they forfeit their title because of that. That's, right. that's yeah. insanity to me. Yeah. That's sending the wrong message because it's telling the athletes, like, look, you know, we're going to overregulate. We're going to be the moral police. Now, if that guy got found out that he had slept with a hooker the night before, would they forfeit his title? Uh, no. Way. Yeah. But that's a, I mean, that's a more else. morally yeah. reprehensible. I think the general community would be like, well, I'd rather this dude wasn't having sex with a hooker. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a wrong message to send my children, you know, people that are in the viewing community for the UFC mm-hmm. and other things, rather than, you know, oh, he tested positive for cocaine. I mean, that's like a personal decision affects no one. I mean, it's just... It, you start to rub your head and go, what are we trying to prevent here? You know, it's like steroids, performance-enhancing drugs. Like, okay, I, we want a level playing field. Makes sense. I mean, even that I would have some disagreement with, but that makes sense. But when you start putting all these illogical things in there, it's just like, come on, man. Like, yeah, yeah. It doesn't add up. Doesn't it doesn't add up, yeah. and, it, and it doesn't even translate into increased performance. I mean, it's like, are you going to start telling me I can't drink coffee? Yeah, like, right. there's actually protocols yeah. for the Olympic protocol where they – only are allowed to have a certain level of caffeine. Wow. That's crazy. It's insanity. Yeah. So if I drink a pot of coffee, you're telling me now I can't fight? I'm, I'm <laughs> testing dirty? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't think a lot of people know that. And then, like, even a lot of the list, if you actually go through, like, the WADA ban list and all the substances, I mean, if you look them up, you're like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. Like, I know this doesn't do anything. Like, it's, I mean, these, you, know, you drink half the shakes from GNC and you, you, you test dirty anyway. If you drink them, you don't feel any different. Right, right. 
doesn't increase your performance. Don't do yeah. shit. Yeah, and you have guys like Michael Fe- Michael Phelps, who yeah. is like one of the best Olympic athletes of all time, and he's ripping a bong. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're trying to penalize him for that. It's yeah. crazy. Dude, if you can do that and smoke weed, yeah. you're the man. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mentioned the NFL players advocating for weed because, you know, all these guys get hit in the head a lot of times mm-hmm. and they get brain damage, right? So cannabis, you know, people can, can Google this, that the, the government has a patent on cannabis, mm-hmm. on cannabinoids as a neuroprotecting and right. antioxidant. Right. How does it make sense that they're, you know, federally, you know, making it illegal, you know, where it has no medical benefits? Mm-hmm. Like, how does it make sense? Well, like, I mean, there doesn't. Thoughts? I mean, that's a, you know, you have to, you know, there's no thoughts on that. It's just absolutely absurd. I mean, there's no way to answer that. It's, since time immemorial, there's been consensus that there's some medical benefit to cannabis. You know, right. whatever your theory on it is, there's no researcher that has real data out there that actually does the clinical trials and studies of the subject that would actually argue that marijuana is devoid of any medical potential, right? I mean, that's just obvious. So to talk about, well, the government secured patents and other things, I'm not going to argue the efficacy of any of that. What I will say is that it's just patently obvious that marijuana has some medicinal applications. Yeah. It's clearly not. I mean, that's a, then you might as well say cucumbers are the same because that's <laughs> yeah. you're making the same argument. Yeah. And it's crazy because cannabis is still a Schedule One drug, which right. is supposed to have no medicinal values. That's right. It's, it's, it's well, I mean, but that's again, it's like that scheduling is. Yeah. There's no sense to that. Yeah. I mean, you, think, you, you think cannabis is going to be rescheduled? Yeah, time? I mean, absolutely, it has to. There's no way that it, it, that people will allow it to stay a Schedule One. I, I mean, I've always said like I think it's crazy that we're sitting here talking about going from schedule one to two or three right. like that's yeah, crazy. crazy like even sit here and have that conversation you go well one day i hope it gets to schedule two or three like, yeah, it's like it shouldn't be scheduled at all <laughs> yeah, yeah. again you're talking about cucumber you right. know it's like <laughs> right. you can't you know like look I, there's you could do things to cucumbers to make them have you know psychoactive properties right. and that's all we're doing is we're taking cannabis plants and enhancing them to have more and more, you know, effects of, you know, either recreationally or medicinally, you know, high CBD, high THC, and then we're finding all these new compounds in there that are, you know, mega psychotropic effects and all this stuff. So it's like you can take any plant, any animal, and you can genetically modify it to massive extremes and get varying results. Yeah. But it's like, you know, the fact that we're trying to have this discussion and this argument over whether it's medically, you know, have any medical application whatsoever, you know, where does it land? I mean, it, it shouldn't be scheduled at all. And if you really want to put limitations on it and you felt that there was a necessity to do that, then you start restricting the overall THC levels and things yeah. like that. Usage or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 So. Yeah, I mean, there's even, like, case studies now about, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know what the ingredient is in, in mushroom, like psilocybin or something. Psilocybin. But it's also been known to help people that have depression. Well, I mean, you know. again, you're opening up a, you know, we could do an 18 podcast on fungi. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it's the oldest <laughs> thing around. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's more connected to the earth than we'll ever be. And, you know, there's a lot of good information out there. Right. And, you know, Paul Stamets would definitely bring in on that, um, the mushroom hat man. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, mushrooms really are the next step. I mean, I'm kind of like cannabis is here and, I'm already shifting gears. Sure. I'm like, I'm ready to start talking about microdosing, and, yeah, yeah. you know, for psilocybin because, you know, mushrooms are the next frontier. I mean, yeah. I really would, I was hoping that we'd be having the conversation about cannabis would be done. It'd be institutionalized. Right. Yeah. By the time I was 30 years old, yeah. it'd be it should have been. in the bag. Yeah. Like, I'd be going to 7 Eleven and getting packs of joints that were any 
flavor profile, any THC right. level I wanted, it would be all out there. And instead, I'm 48 years old, and we're still trying to figure out where marijuana is going to go. It's sad. But, yes, I wish I could have spent the last 18 years working exclusively on, you know, mushrooms. Really? Oh, absolutely, because I think that's, you know, really where we should go from here. It's like cannabis, mushrooms, and then we start talking about coca and other substances. like LSD. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and a lot of those things, you know, are very benign if they're used appropriately, medicinally, and in controlled environments. And we can't even get to that conversation because we can't get any legal research done. We can't get the, the proper cl- clinical trials right, done. It's not FDA approved. Like yeah, that. I mean, so you're constantly being stymied by all that. So, you know, unfortunately, we're still in the you know, the draconian era of, of drug legalization and realization, I like to call it. Is that we just really don't even realize what we have at our fingertips. You know, we're so focused on, you know, putting man-made chemicals into our body to you know, fix our problems. I mean, people, if there are humans in a thousand years from now, we'll look back on this time and go, what What the the hell? hell? (laughs) I mean, it's like us looking back on the dark ages and people leeching and, you know, chipping into their brain to relieve pressure. Bleeding people out for diseases. Bleeding people out. Oh, you got a cold? All right, we'll just just bring it in. We'll just bring it in. You'll be good in the morning. Yeah. I mean, but that, the sad thing is, they're yeah. going to look at us and go, we were the same. Yeah. Like, yeah. They won't think we progressed a whole lot. Right, right. Like, you were taking oxycodone? What yeah. the <laughs> hell? Yeah. Okay, that was smart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's insane. I mean, I, people don't realize, like, if you go back and look at even American history, I mean, talk about the Harrison Narcotic Act and things like that. We, we only started having illegal drugs in the United States in 1914. Right, right. What That's did people do in the 1700s that. and 1800s? Yeah. What was going on? Well, yeah. They were getting hammered. They were getting tossed. I mean, there was cocaine and Coca-Cola. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, right. laudlum was, like, rampant in the Old West. And that was, like, all the women, they'd, you know, have a few babies and survive somehow miraculously. And then they'd be hooked on laudlum, which was, like, you know, some kind of concentrated form of morphine or something yeah. that just absolutely just wiped their brains clean and you know so people were just walking around in all kinds of states of unknown and you know i think that there is a a time where you gotta look step in and go okay guys there's some things we shouldn't be putting in our bodies the problem is that most of those things manifest as prescription drugs now yeah right right and the things that like really we should be studying and talking about like these are the natural things that are occurring in nature that can help and make society better and potentially help people therapeutically and other things, you know, they're just being pushed aside. But like you said, and that might go back to the pharmaceutical industry in a way, but I don't think it's, you know, by design. I think that just the reality is that those pharmaceutical industries are going, well, look, you've, you've got all these restrictions on marijuana and psilocybin and all LSD. It's like, why are we going to put all our money and time into developing products when we can sell you something that will, you know, maybe cure your arthritis, but it will give you brain cancer. Yeah, right. And you'll buy it, yeah. you know, and we'll make millions off of yeah. it. And it's legal. Right. Why are we going to do all the R&D on cannabis? Right. It's a plant. Which, yeah, it's a plant, <laughs> yeah. and, like, you can grow it. You right. know what I mean? So. Yeah, yeah that's why you have, like, these, these pharma companies that are making synthesized weed. Yeah, you know? like Marinol yeah, and Marinol, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah which, then, yeah, and it doesn't really work as well. And, you know, like, a lot of people just want to smoke a joint. There's, like, yeah. a therapeutic relief and. Smoking a joint, you know, and I think a lot of people that really understand cannabis are like, hey, I'd like to grow a few plants, roll some joints, smoke out, and they get the relief from that, like, 
you know, seed the joint, you know, vertical where they've created it. It's organic. They've nurtured it. And so that, that's like there's some wisdom in that, you know. Yeah. It's like the old farmer, like, grow your own food. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't think, you know, a lot of people say, you know, cannabis is a gateway drug to, you know, a lot of things. But I don't, well, I don't think intelligent yeah, people yeah, say that. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think what cannabis did is it opened up people's minds to what alternative type of medicines could do, like DMT or, you know, psilocybin or, you know. I think those are people utility. that would drift that way anyway. Yeah. I, I don't think that people that tried marijuana went, holy shit, this is what marijuana is? Well, I'm going to do coke. Then. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I've never heard anyone do that. Yeah, like, yeah, I've yeah. been around people my whole life that have no, There's no association. Drugs. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, anyone that I ever met that was like, I want to be like an explorer. I want to be the guy that's out on the frontier of LSD. I don't want to take one hit. I want to take ten. Mm-hmm. And then I want to see what a sheep will do to me. I've been around those people my whole life and not a single one of those extremists or even moderates that was like I'm going to try a lot more drugs like they already had that kind of intention and cannabis usually didn't even remain a part of their journey like it was just kind of like something they may or may not try yeah it's like there but it wasn't it was if anything cannabis was not strong enough for them, you know, like it right. didn't satisfy that need, and those people were the, had that need way before cannabis yeah, in yeah. their life, yeah. you know, they were looking to break the reality plane in a strong way, like right. they wanted to hammer through to the other side and knock on the doorstep of heaven and yeah. talk to God, <laughs> right. they really wanted to strip the face off of reality and find the other side, yeah. and you know, that mindset, you know, marijuana might even slow you down and just kind of stop you and bring you back a little bit, I'd argue it's it might even be a, a gateway blocker, you know, if anything. <laughs> right. You know, like, it's like it may be a landing spot, a comfort zone to someone that, you know, wants that in their life. But it's like, oh, maybe they have some kids or responsibilities. And they go, all right, well, I can use marijuana as kind of a way to kind of keep my mind occupied in that realm, but not get me so distant that I might not be able to reconnect to the reality of having to maintain responsibilities. Yeah, and, right. You know, because I know a lot of people that if they could, they would – be on an ayahuasca trip every week. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, it's hard to explain that to your kid why he didn't get his ride to school that day. <laughs> he's not on an ayahuasca yeah, trip. Yeah, you're out there talking to spirits and whatnot. Yeah. You know, this frog over here led me down the pathway of truth and I ended <laughs> yeah. up in Brazil. I, yeah. You know, sorry about school. Yeah. So, but, you know, cannabis can kind of give them some connection to the, you know, I guess the enlightenment that they seek and without them being completely off the rails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, this is guys like Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. And, and big advocates for, like, LSD. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Apple might have not even been here, you know, if he didn't go that to that trip. But, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and, but, I mean, that's, a you know, again, a different, you know, conversation. That's not a podcast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the spiritual side of, of, you know, losing one's reality and being connected through you know, different types of experimental drug protocols has got vast rewards out there, but it's not for everyone, you know, I mean, it's the right person, right time, you know, appropriate circumstances, Right. but I'm an advocate for that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned you're a CBD advocate too, right, mm-hmm. so if you, you know, recover and absolutely. sleep, what do you think the future holds for CBD and the companies in that realm, since now it's... <laughs> hard, to do, hard to know, hard to know where that, that train stops, if it does, or if it continues to expand, um, proliferation of uh you know brands in that space has been astronomical and 
you know, it's ubiquitous now. There's like, you know, a CBD brand born every hour. Yeah, CBD mm-hmm. farms everywhere, popping everywhere. Up. And uh, you know, but the reality of it is, I tell people this all the time. It's like, you know, we don't really know enough to know that CBD is the the, the cure all or this and that. But you know, it's like I, I feel like this could have been a CBN conversation mm-hmm. or a CBG conversation right. we had. You know, if someone would have really gone that direction before CBD kicked out of the game. Um, there's so many different compounds you could kind of focus on that are not psychoactive in cannabis that provide benefits. And then, you know, there's the discussion about, you know, full spectrum. You know, I think that, you know, my experiences with CBD have been a lot better when it's combined with at least some small percentage of THC. Yeah, all the different cannabinoids that... Yeah, I just feel like, you know, I think that you need some kind of broad spectrum application. I don't, I haven't found a lot of you know, personal relief from just a CBD specific with no other compounds involved. But I'm not saying that it, it can't work for some people, sure. you know, it's just, it just hasn't been as effective for me. So, you know, I mean, I, again, it's just a personal thing. And I think that CBD has a lot of potential because it's mainstream. So you have a broader reach, you know, and it's funny because so many people that are maybe not inclined to consume cannabis are running for CBD. Like mm-hmm. it's completely inert, but it's like, guys, like, that's the same conversation you should be having about marijuana. It's just about education. Like, I drink alcohol, but I don't go into into a a store and go, well, I want, you know, moonshine, and I want to drink a whole bottle. I don't do that, because I learn about the alcohol. When I want an 8% beer, a heavy, you know, big IPA, something bold, I'm going to go, okay, well, I'm not going to have six. I'm going to have two, you know, and but if I'm drinking Budweiser, and I'm going to have three or four, you know, I'm okay with that. So it's like people educate themselves, you know. So like it's the same thing with cannabis, you know. It's like if you teach people about different strains and give them a variety. And I think what's really underserved right now in the marketplace, and I talked about this to people all the time, and it's funny the response I get is there's not enough low THC Mm -hmm. cannabis in the legal marketplace. Mm -hmm. Like, there's so many people that I talk to, they're like, wow, last time I smoked pot was in the 60s or in the 80s. Right. And they're like, you know, I've tried a couple, you know, yeah. things recently, and I, like, took one hit, and I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital. Right. And they're like, I just wish they'd make something that was lower. And I'm going, how is it that I'm having this conversation with everybody, and it's exactly what I want, right. and there's nothing, there's so few products out there, I should say. Right. Yeah. There's just like I mean like even when you get something that's light, it's not light. It's yeah, yeah. yeah ten, ten it's, milligrams to you could be like nothing, but ten right. milligrams to grandma could be like, oh shit, I'm gonna die. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean as far as flour goes, there's just like nobody mm-hmm. catering to like a, a low THC market. Like right. where I, I'd like to be able to roll a joint and be able to smoke the joint beginning to end mm-hmm. and have a nice little head. <laughs> right. Nowadays, if I smoke a high TC joint, I can't even finish it. You know, because it's way too strong. I mean, and we're now getting into, like, dabbing and right. everything else. Yeah, so that stuff's like 90, 9% yeah. pure. It's, it's crazy. And there's a place for it. I mean, right. there's people that can do that. So. Yeah, yeah. I agree. There's people so who drink moonshine. Next, yeah, what's next for Chris Blue? You know, what's you, next? Yeah. Uh, another meeting tonight I got to get to. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean. I, I, I meant, like, career-wise. I mean, you talk about, you know, you're in cannabis, you're a yeah. you know, turning cannabis. No, I back. definitely want to stay, you know, I want to try and complete this, this journey and, I would like to get to to psilocybin and mushrooms before before it's over. I really think that that would be, you know, I, I would have liked to hit ten things before the before the legal career was sure. ended. But I think that uh, you know I'll be lucky to get psilocybin into the, under the belt. I'd like to see cannabis fully legalized, being 
appropriately regulated, appropriately marketed, and I'd like to see it in the mainstream the right way. Uh, and I'd like to see psilocybin in that same regard. That's that's where I'd be happy to retire and say, okay, my job's done. I've, I've done enough. Cool. Well, after this, are... we're going to drop up a business plan and pay you as an attorney for psilocybin. psilocybin. Are you part of the legislative process, lobbying process? Like, yeah, I mean, I... Defend, I defending people sure. on the psilocybin side? Or? Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would I definitely have a lot of clients that have been arrested for, for mushroom growing, for, you know, possession, things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the problem is right now is that having that conversation in California is literally like 1990 trying to have a conversation about cannabis legalization yeah. in California. It's like, you know, out of everybody you talk to, they just kind of laugh at you and tell you it's never going to happen. I mean, I legitimately, in 2000, from 2000 to 2010, would have conversations with prosecutors and judges all over the state of California that would tell me you're crazy if you think that cannabis will ever be legalized in the state of California. Yeah, it's nuts. So, I mean, here we are in 2020 with legal cannabis shops, you know, and it's I'm like, okay, well, that was 10 years ago, you know what I mean? So, like, right now to have that conversation about psilocybin, you just, there's no traction to it. Right. Even are though Colorado's decriminalized. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they'll, they'll put you in jail for yeah. possession of mushrooms. Like, they're going to charge you with sales because... The average person that buys shrooms and consumes them regularly buys in bulk. They don't really buy like a gram of shrooms. Yeah, that's bags. That's just a, that's how that industry. weed looks like weed. Right, yeah. weed looks like weed, and but mushrooms look like shiitake mushrooms or Trader Joe's mushrooms. Well, the funny or, thing is, right? a lot of people now that are that are like I think it's called mycologists or whatever, the people that really focus and study on on fungi. Uh, I probably got that name wrong, but whoever those folks are that have dedicated their career to studying mushrooms, a lot of them that are mushroom farmers per se, they don't just grow, you know, mushrooms for for psychoactive reasons. They grow mushrooms for edible to eat, you know, for everything. They become consumed with the with sure. the mushroom universe, and they'll make clothes out of them now, and materials and other things. So you know, a lot of times they'll come in and raid a place and go, "Oh, you're you're growing." Illegal mushrooms. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, these are just a bad hygiene. Yeah, but no, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that is, and that, that's been just going on for a long time. But a lot of people are really starting to. It, again, it's kind of like you know, 1990 to like 2000 in the cannabis world, where there was a lot of people really starting to like farmers and whatnot starting to grow strains that were high CBD or specific for certain therapeutic reasons. And now you're seeing that in the mushroom community. Like guys are really starting to expand their knowledge base and learn a lot more about it. It's not just, hey, let's go grow shrooms and get high as shit and trip balls or, you know, sell them and make money. Like people are really starting to learn about what mushrooms are. Yeah, what they find to applications. Yeah, too. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so much. I mean, if you think... Cannabis has a multitude of applications. No, I've read, some, on a whole yeah, I've read some research papers about mushrooms, and it's, it's crazy what it can help people do. Absolutely, yeah. because now you're not talking about one plant that has kind of limited spectrum. You're talking, you're talking about, about mushrooms across yeah. the spectrum. There's so many different types of mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Endless. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know you're a busy dude, but before, yeah. before we uh, wrap this up, I wanted to bring it home by, um, by asking you. I mean, sure. the, whole part, the, the whole conversation is more so the downside of cannabis. Do you see 
contrasting some pearls on that side. Pearls? What do you think the upside can be? Well, I think we did talk about a lot of things that are positive, too. I mean, I think we, we've discussed the, the the migration of cannabis from being completely illegal to yeah. being legal. That's, That's a good thing. Right. Uh, we're seeing very few states now that completely ban cannabis activity yeah. altogether. So those are all good things. And I do see, I think the next big step for cannabis is interstate commerce. I think that, you know, that's going to start to open up. I have this conversation with people all the time, especially in California. I say, well, you can't shoot for Texas and New York. I mean, those things will come. Yeah. But if you sit there and go, well, I only want to, I only want to do it if it's if we get Texas and Florida's. And, sure. I'm like, look, you got to start with, like, the Oregons and the Colorados. I'm like, well, but that's not going to help California. Say, sure it is because it's long term. Because once you get Oregon and you get Colorado and you get Nevada, yeah. then you can expand out, right? You're not going to get Texas without all the states in between, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't, that's how you get there, right? Yeah. You can't jump over it. And if sure. you get on an airplane, it's got to be legal federally, right? Yeah, so, right, right. <laughs> anyways, I digress. It's That's the next big thing, and I think that's the thing that's going to change the face of Canada. 